over and over and over in both the Old and the New Testaments, in various generations. The scriptures highlight circumstances where God is sovereign over even evil men. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. Our God of mercy and justice, we stand in awe this morning. We're gathered as your people, and we're considering both your power and your peace, your might as the creator, and your meekness as the savior. We thank you for the gift of your eternal, sufficient, authoritative word. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would minister to your people this day, that we may be changed, that we would be transformed from glory to glory for your namesake. We ask this in Jesus' name alone. Amen. As we conclude our study of Genesis, I want to begin with a a little imaginary scenario. I want you to imagine with me that you're at a a grocery store making a very large purchase, which nowadays with inflation is not hard to imagine. But imagine you're, say, at Costco. Costco is a place my family and I love to shop. Uh, They have a great concept where not only are you shopping, but they actually feed you as you're shopping. They have little samples that you can pick up as you go Uh, down each aisle. And I want you to imagine that as you're in Costco, you make a decision to buy a very large and expensive item there. I don't know what it is, but you make a very large purchase. And before you decide to leave, you go back in with your cart. After making this large purchase, you have your receipt, but you go back into, of course, peruse some more and maybe, uh, yeah, hit those sample tables. But now imagine with me that as you go to leave, you realize that You've lost the receipt. The large purchase that you made now has no verification. And if you know how Costco works, they have uh, greeters who also greet you as you leave and they require you to show them your receipt. And then they do something with a magic marker where they, they look at your entire card and just with one little wave, they're able to verify that you've purchased every single one of those items. But you're standing there behind a line of people with no receipt. Now imagine with me what's going through your mind for a minute. Perhaps you're thinking, what will the employees do? What will the manager do? Will they demand that I do something to prove that I made the purchase? Or you may think, oh no, I may have to buy this thing all over again. Or perhaps you're thinking, my car's not too far, I'll make a run for it and they'll never catch me. Now all of these thoughts are silly, especially running, because a price had already been paid and there's absolutely no reason for it to be paid again. Though you personally may not bear sufficient proof, the reality is the store's records, their inventory, the employee who rang you up at the register, your own credit card statement, even the surveillance footage all testify on your behalf. Put simply, it's not up to you to prove that the price has been paid. It's up to another. And I use this illustration this morning because in this final chapter of Genesis, we have a very large and honorable funeral possession, a procession for Israel, Jacob, the father of 12 sons who at many times and in various ways had almost dragged his gray hairs down with sorrow to Sheol. But by the mercies of God, he gets many years 
to spend with not only his sons, but with his beloved son, Joseph. And he's doing this in Egypt after that devastating famine that lasted seven years in the ancient Near East. And even though it's been decades since Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and the rest had betrayed their brother Joseph, they had betrayed him by throwing him into a pit, stealing his coat, dragging him out of the pit and selling him into slavery, and then crafting this lie, this deception to their father that he had been killed, dipping his own coat in blood. And it had been decades since he had not only revealed himself to them as not only the second in command, the ruler only under Pharaoh over all of Egypt, but that he had also wept on them and wept with them and had blessed them and provided for them, sustaining their entire family through the famine. And even though all of that has now been around 17 years in the rearview mirror, there's still a lingering fear in the back of the brothers' minds that maybe Joseph was lying. Maybe deep down, Joseph was just pretending to forgive us in front of dad, in front of Israel. But now that he's dead, well, Joseph may be seeking vengeance. In a sense, they're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, we have to pay for this all over again. But what we're going to see today is a demonstration again of the grace of God for sinners. Why? Because of the intervention of the risen servant. Last week in chapters 48 and 49, the last two weeks, Pastor Micah uh, has taught us well how Israel blessed each of his sons and how many of them received a blessing, but some of them a curse. And we saw, especially last week, how Israel, the father, was waiting for the Lord's salvation. He was waiting for the Messiah. He was looking forward to his own glorification. And we were challenged last week to look to the Lord for our own glorification, to fix our hope on Christ alone. Well, today we see him passing away. And we see this wonderful, lavish funeral that involves not only Israel, but all of Egypt. And so today, as we complete the book of Genesis, I want to dive into three important things together. If you're taking note, please jot these down. First, we're going to see how Joseph is a pattern for believers. We've seen this throughout this study, but we're going to see how we can learn from his example in this chapter. But better than that, we're going to see how Joseph, secondly, is a picture of Christ. We'll see how he demonstrates once again the person and work of our Lord. But I don't want to conclude the book of Genesis without going back and revisiting some of the important things we've learned. And so we're going to close with Genesis, a pillar for doctrine, and how not only God's sovereignty, but many other key theological truths are grounded in this book that we've just studied. And we must affirm and believe and uphold the truth of Genesis. And it's my prayer today that like Joseph's brothers, we as a congregation would understand that apart from divine intervention, apart from the work of the risen servant, you and I would face the just wrath of a holy God. But the gospel declares to us that we've just sang that God in Christ suffers the wrath that we deserve. And so we cling to Christ that we may experience his kindness. The price has been paid. The receipt is not missing. And therefore, we need not fear. So with that in mind, let's first look at Joseph, who is a pattern for believers. Verse 1 says that at the death of Israel, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. 
He loved his father and he got the years back that the locust had eaten, so to speak. We see him here in verse one, weeping over his father in tearful embrace as he passes from this life to the next. And surely his death greatly affected not only Joseph, but notice that it affected all of Egypt. Notice in verse three that 40 days were required for the embalming. And it says at the end there that the Egyptians wept for Israel 70 days. That's significant. Why? Well, when a Pharaoh died in Egypt, there was a required mourning of 72 days. And so this is almost as if to Egypt, their own Pharaoh had died. The people that are unbelieving are entering into the grief of Joseph, of Joseph's brothers. And by the way, just a keynote for us, this is important for us to think about when our, close friend, our closest friends experience the loss of someone they love. We're to support them, we're to pray for them, but sometimes it's fitting simply just to weep with them. And so Joseph uh, takes some time to embalm his father. Verse two says that he commanded the servants uh, to embalm his father. Now this is proper in Egypt, but he's not doing this so that he may bury his father locally. Instead, he's preparing his body for the return to Canaan. Now, just a little note for you science buffs, Egyptian mummification was at least a 40-day process. It was a process where you would remove the organs from the body, and then you would coat the inside and the outside of the body in a variety of local salts, very special salts. And they had to do this over and over and over uh, for around 40 days. They would then wrap the body in linens and cover it in amulets, often uh, with great extravagance. And then in many cases, they'd put a mask over the body or over the face rather, and then they'd place it in a coffin. And the idea of this whole process was to preserve, protect, and provide for the dead in the afterlife. Of course, their beliefs were, uh, were folklore and myth, uh, and yet they had a very high regard for burial. Now, one of the hardest decisions that we have to make is what do we do with the body of a loved one after they die? Do we do a lavish funeral or do we do a simple celebration of life? Uh, What do we do if we can't afford a coffin or a plot at the funeral home? Sometimes these decisions are motivated by guilt or by pride. We wanna show off or we feel bad that we didn't do enough. Uh, Sometimes there's a lot of other voices that lend themselves loudly and a lot of opinions that weigh in. In fact, there are some Bible teachers who teach that cremation is sin, uh, that you must bury the dead fully intact. And I think burial or cremation is a matter of conscience because on the final day of resurrection, God has the power to reanimate DNA from all dead bodies and bones eventually decompose to dust anyway. Uh, given enough time. So God has the power to animate the DNA of bones or of dust, uh, whatever state it's in. So this is a decision that families must make as a matter of conscience and make together. But we see Joseph taking the lead for his brothers and adopting the Egyptian process of embalming and mummification, if you would, uh, for his father. Now, in all of this, there's a few examples that we see in Joseph. So if you're taking note, I wanna jot these three things down. The first thing that we note that we see Joseph's example for us is obedience, obedience. You see, last week in chapter 49, near the end, we heard Israel's last words, and he's commanding his sons, 
don't leave me buried in Egypt. Remember? Very specific instructions in case they forgot where the field was. He says, I want you to bury me in the cave in which Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah were all buried in. This was his final command to his sons. And what do we see Joseph immediately doing? After his death, of course, he embalms him. He appropriately grieves his loss. He honors him. But then he goes to Pharaoh's family to seek permission for a leave of absence. Why? So that he may journey back to Canaan, which would have taken weeks, and to bury his father. Now, verse 7 tells us that Joseph didn't go alone. Notice it says, With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders, all the elders of the land of Egypt, and then, of course, the household of Joseph and his brother and his father's household. It says only the children and the flocks and the herds were left. Verse 9 says there were also chariots and horsemen. And the text says it was a very great company. Martin Luther pointed out that there is no burial recorded in the scriptures quite as honorable as this or with such wealth of detail. In fact, commentators add that apart from our Lord Jesus, more space is given to Israel's death and burial than any other person in scripture. Why is that? Why is it such a big deal that Moses captures this in Genesis as he concludes the book Why is it such a big deal that Israel be buried back in Canaan? Well, the book closes with us remembering the promises of a faithful covenant-keeping God. Remember, God had revealed himself to Abraham, Genesis 15.1, telling him, I will be your shield. Your reward will be very great. Yahweh had promised that he would be El Shaddai, the Almighty One, the all-powerful God who would number Abraham's offspring like the sand in the desert, like the stars in the sky. God had given he and Isaac and Jacob a wonderful land that would be their future inheritance. But not only that, he also promised that a coming seed would crush the head of the deceptive serpent. He would make right all that was lost in the garden. And so Joseph is honoring his father and he's obeying him so that he might fulfill the promise of God that, hey, you're not just going to be wanderers, sojourners, lost in Egypt forever. No, you're going to return to the land. Joseph's obedience is a wonderful example for us. We know obedience doesn't only involve what is easy or convenient, though I wish it were that case. I'll obey the easy commands in Scripture, the commands that are convenient. No, often obedience comes at great expense, but obedience also comes with great impact. Notice in verse 11 that the Canaanites, the other peoples of the land, they observe this great lamentation for the patriarch. The life of Israel was honored in such a way that at least two other nations were impacted, the Egyptians and the surrounding Canaanites. And none of this would have happened apart from Joseph's obedience. We can learn from his obedience. But secondly, notice with me Joseph's faithfulness. His faithfulness. In verse 14, Joseph and his brothers and all those from Egypt who were with them returned to Egypt. This was a a time of great mourning, of great weeping, of great honor. And now they return back to Egypt. But look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15 says, when Joseph's 
brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Maybe he's going to retaliate. Maybe he's been lying this entire time and he's going to pay us back. And so they tell him this story. And this story is questionable. So notice with me, they sent a message to Joseph, verse 16, saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And so then they say, that's what dad said. So now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And it says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Why did he weep? Well, the scripture doesn't make it clear. So we, we can't really guess, but it's most obvious that they doubted his character. They even ostensibly made up this story about Israel, commanding Joseph to forgive them. You see, we have no record of verse 17 ever being said by Israel. We have to take it at face value that he said this. But I highly suspect that this was made up. They're, in a sense, having their dead dad speak on their behalf. Now, we already know what Israel said to Joseph back in chapter 49. Genesis 49, 23 and 24, he said this to Joseph. He said, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Israel had a great view of his son, Joseph. He already saw him from the perspective of his arms were unmoved. And so certainly Jacob wasn't doubting that his son Joseph had forgiven his brothers. But it gets a little bit heavier. Verse 18 says, they also came and fell down before him and they said, behold, we are your servants. And this surely would have been the moment where Joseph flashed back in his mind to the dreams he had as a young man. Remember where all of his brothers bowed down to him. After all that Joseph had done for them, they truly believed that his intent was still to harm him, to harm them. And so to save their skin, they offer themselves to be his servants. It seems as though, doesn't it, that these sons, with the exception of Joseph and Benjamin, constantly were scheming, plotting, always looking out for themselves. And who does that remind you of? It seems that they always used the playbook that their father, Jacob, the heel catcher, had constantly used at least in his early life. A little bit of deception mixed in with a lot of hard work. And so perhaps they're doing that here. But at the same time, notice they also reiterate their guilt and they plead for forgiveness. And notice Joseph's response. Joseph said to them, verse 19, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. See, what Joseph knew that he was not in the place of God. He knew that God alone forgives iniquity and transgression. Yes, they had sinned against him greatly. He doesn't diminish that. But he knew that God alone stands in the place of judge. And so Joseph's perspective here is that, yes, you meant evil against me, but God meant that evil for good. Why? So that many people would survive the famine. And even going above and beyond that, Joseph promises 
not only to forgive the past, but now to provide for them into the future and even for their children. And he speaks kind words to them. He shows his faithfulness to God. I love what Matthew Henry said about this. He says, quote, see what an excellent spirit Joseph was of and learn of him to render good for evil. He comforted them and to banish all their fears, he spake kindly to them. Broken spirits must be bound up and encouraged. Those we love and forgive, we must not only do well for, but speak kindly to, end quote. You see, Joseph demonstrates to us faithfulness, faithfulness to God, trusting his sovereign will, but also faithfulness to his own word that he would remember from the past, forgive and provide. But he's also showing faithfulness to them as his family, not coming against them. He even demonstrates faithfulness in a promise and in a command to them down in verses 24 and 25, where he says, listen, I'm about to die and God is going to visit you and he's going to bring you up from this land back to the promised land. And so you need to remember me. Don't leave my bones here in Egypt, but carry my bones with you when that generation returns. And so the end of Genesis, the end of Joseph's life are marked by a promise and a command. The command is bring my bones back home. Egypt is not the final destination for the people of God. How do we know that? Because the promise of God is that he'll visit his people and bring them up out of this land. Now, the writer of Hebrews had a lot of different things he could have highlighted from Joseph's life. But it's this moment that he highlights in Hebrews 11, in that great hall of faith. In Hebrews 11:22, it says, quote, by faith Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones, end quote. You see, Joseph in this moment is calling the people back to remember the promise of God, even as he commands them what to do with his bones. He demonstrates faithfulness to God, faithfulness to his word, faithfulness to others. Wonderful pattern for us to learn from. But thirdly, if you're taking note, we also learn from Joseph a demonstration of submission. Submission to the sovereign plan of God. In verse 20, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. All throughout his life, from his dreams to the prison to the interpretation of other people's dreams to the wisdom needed for Egypt to the forgiveness needed for his brothers, all in that, Joseph demonstrates to us what it means for a follower of God to submit to God's sovereign will, to God's sovereign plan. You see, Joseph could have railed against the Lord for everything that came his way. He could have certainly sat in the gloominess of prison and sang that familiar song, Woe is Me, as he thought about the injustice of Potiphar's wife. He could have asked, Why, Lord? When the cupbearer forgot about him, we often do this, Why, Lord? He certainly could have blamed the Lord for giving him those dreams in the first place, which led to all of this. But instead, he constantly demonstrates submission to the sovereignty of God. And now, given this moment, what does he do? He says, you meant it for evil, but here's the sovereign plan of God. God meant it for good. Sometimes when we speak of God's sovereignty, we use terms that sound a lot like divine permission rather than divine providence. But that's not how we're to understand 
God's sovereignty. Observe with me what Joseph does not say. He does not say in verse 20, you meant it for evil, but God allowed it for good. doesn't say that. The text does not say that God was aware of the brother's evil and he was taken off guard by it. And so he constructed his plan after the fact to make up for the mistakes that the brothers made because that wasn't part of God's plan. It wasn't part of God's will. And so God had to quickly figure something out in this this little meeting of the Trinity. Okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, what do we do here in this situation? Let's fix what these brothers did. We can undo it. Here's a masterful plan. This will look great on paper. We're gonna actually have Joseph come to second in command. No. I like what John Calvin says about the sovereignty of God. He says, they babble and talk absurdly who in place of God's providence substitute bare permission as if God sat in a watchtower awaiting chance events and his judgments thus depended upon human will. You see, when we look at scripture, we read verses like Psalm 115 Verse three, in the NIV, it says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. There are many verses that echo this. Psalm 135, verse six, Isaiah 46, Jeremiah 18, Daniel 4, Romans 9, just to name a few. Uh, Ephesians 1.11 says that we've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. Over and over and over, in both the Old and the New Testaments, in various generations, the scriptures highlight circumstances where God is sovereign over even evil men. And yet he's unstained by their sin. Lots of examples of this. In the book of Job, the Chaldeans are the ones who raided and stole Job's camels. They're the ones who killed his servants. But when we peel back the spiritual curtain, what do we see? We learned they were compelled by Satan to do this. But Satan was not a rogue agent. No, we learned it was God who gave Satan permission to do this. And yet God is not the author of evil. We see this in the death of King Ahab. We see this in the marriage of Samson. We see this in the foolishness of King Rehoboam. We see this in the rise of Absalom and the rise of Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. These are all evil people, evil decisions, and yet... These all show us where there are agents of evil. God is sovereignly working out good on the earth. And in case you sit there with your arms crossed disagreeing, say, I don't know, I don't think I can believe in a sovereign God even when there's evil, then I would ask you today to consider the cross. The most evil deed done in all of creation. But the perspective of the early church in Acts chapter 4 was this, they said, yes, in the city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. There's a lot of people against Jesus. But notice, they said, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. If a believer denies the absolute sovereignty of God, then either they misunderstand it or they have so much pride, they're unwilling to see God as God. Charles Spurgeon said, no doctrine in the whole word of God has more excited the hatred of mankind than the truth of the absolute sovereignty of God. The fact that the Lord reigneth is indisputable, and it is this fact that arouses the utmost opposition in the unrenewed human heart. 
See, Jonathan Edwards said we shouldn't look at God's sovereignty as a cuss word. This is not something that is bad. And J.C. Ryle says that of all the doctrines of the Bible, none is so offensive to human nature as the doctrine of God's sovereignty. But Jonathan Edwards had a beautiful perspective of God's sovereignty, which is what I want to challenge us to have. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said, God's sovereignty has ever appeared to me a great part of his glory. It has often been my delight to approach God and adore him as a sovereign God. See, that should be our perspective. That's Joseph's perspective. He says, you meant evil. God was sovereignly meaning good. And what was the outcome? Israel was given food. Israel was given a home to sustain them through the famine. Israel and Egypt were provided for. What the brothers did was evil, but what God was doing in the midst of that evil was something very, very good. Joseph's obedience, his faithfulness, his submission are a wonderful pattern for us to follow. Now, some of you are looking at your watches saying, we're only on point one. How are we ever going to get through these other points? Uh, But real briefly, I want to look at how, secondly, Joseph is a picture of Christ. And you see, he's not just an example we can learn from. Okay, we need to be more obedient. We need to be more faithful. It's good for us to submit to God's sovereignty. But see, Joseph, with these qualities, demonstrates a wonderful picture of our Lord. And we've already seen a long list of how Jesus demonstrates, or Joseph demonstrates, uh, not as an actual type, but as a picture And so notice that both Jesus and Joseph are beloved of the father. They're both the firstborn, at least Joseph is from his mother. They're both thrown into a pit. They're both stripped of their coat. They're both falsely accused. They were not recognized by their brothers and they are both ruler and savior. There's a long list that we've already given out. A.W. Pink has one if you wanna Google that. But just for a moment, consider these three things we've just observed, the obedience, the faithfulness, the submission of our Lord. Jesus said in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. Our Lord Jesus was perfectly obedient to the law of God. Philippians 2, 8 says that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is perfect in his obedience. Our Lord, secondly, is faithful. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says, the Lord is faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. In fact, in Revelation 1.5, Jesus is called the faithful witness. And in Revelation 19.11, he's known as the rider of the white horse and he's called faithful and true. Jesus is faithful to his people. He's faithful to the Father. He's faithful to the end, even to death. And even though he's obedient and faithful, Jesus is also submitted to the sovereign God and his suffering. Consider 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 23. Peter says, to this you've been called. In the context there, he's speaking of submission to authorities. And he says, to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And here's the example of Christ. He says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled in return. Try that on Twitter. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But I love this part. He says, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus in his suffering submitted to the sovereignty of 
of God. He wept in the garden. If it's possible, Father, may this cup be taken from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. You see, Jesus, like Joseph, leaves this earth with a command and a promise. Before ascending, Matthew records what we call the Great Commission, where Jesus commands his disciples to disciple the nations, but he also leaves them with the promise, I'm with you to the very end of the age. Now, you and I, like Joseph's brothers, may doubt the steadfast love of the Lord on behalf of his people. We may be tempted around, uh, to search around for the receipt and hope maybe I can provide some proof that the price has been paid, that I'm truly justified. We, we may lean like the brothers on outward service. I need to serve and my good works will now qualify me for God's favor, but that's not grace. We just sang it, but in the same way that Joseph was his brother's only source of hope for reconciliation, for forgiveness, for provision. So too in Christ, he is our only hope for righteousness, for peace, for satisfaction. We cling to Christ. We don't cling to our works. We don't cling to our inherent goodness. We don't cling to our family and our background. Oh, I was raised in the church. No, we cling to Christ and Christ alone. Michael Horton says this so well. He says, quote, the person who has been justified by God's grace has a new, higher, and nobler motivation for holiness than the shallow, hypocritical self-righteousness or fear that seems to motivate so many religious people today, end quote. You see, Jesus, like Joseph, not only forgives, but he provides for his brothers. He comforts us and speaks kind words which calm our fears. And so as we conclude the book of Genesis, we see God's promises in a sense beginning to be fulfilled in such a wonderful way. And we see this glorious picture of our Lord in the person and work of Joseph. But now that we've covered every chapter and verse of this foundational book, before we close today, I just want to recap how important the book of Genesis is for our faith, that this is an important book in the canon of scripture. And so let's look at this final point together, Genesis, a pillar for doctrine. Uh, who is here for the first sermon we had in Genesis? Who is here? Okay, good. So a handful of you were. For those of you who weren't, we covered, uh, you're forgiven, but uh, we covered uh, a verse in Psalm 11. Psalm 11 verse 3 says this, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The question we asked in that first study of Genesis is if someone can dismiss the book of Genesis as just folklore or myth, it's just narrative that's rooted in the ancient Near East and it's a, it's a, it's a narrative ploy, it's a way that you write to kind of make sense of the world, but it's not literal, it's not actually what took place. And yes, it's poetic in some sense, but if we can dismiss the book of Genesis, then really we can dismiss, we ask the question, what else do we lose? if we lose the book of Genesis, we'll just consider at least 10 doctrines that we lose. First of all, we lose the doctrine of creation. And so we realize from Genesis that the universe is not random, that you and I weren't formed by chance, but by a gracious creator who made all things ex nihilo, from nothing. We also lose the image of God. In other words, we aren't animals. No, we're individuals made in God's image. We have intrinsic value, worth, dignity, and purpose. 
If we lose the book of Genesis, we lose the concept of gender. And so we don't invent our own gender identity. I'm going to focus on this next week. I'm going to do a, a teaching on the body, on gender and being embodied and engendered. And so special sermon next week. I'm ready for that. No, we learn from Genesis. We're created male and female, embodied and engendered by God's skillful design. If we lose Genesis, we, learn, we lose a, the doctrine of original sin. And so we aren't by nature good. No, we're sinful and broken. We're separated from God. We need divine redemption. If we lose Genesis, we lose the bedrock foundation of marriage and the family. And so we realize marriage isn't just an institution man dreamed up for better work benefits. No, God created marriage. He gave us respective roles in the home. We lose stewardship. We, we realize we're not here to serve the planet. We're here to steward it. We're here to rule and subdue it as God's vice regents. If we lose Genesis, we lose the sanctity of life, which we just learned about with an organization that we love and support here locally. So life isn't something that you just easily discard out of convenience, but as we saw with Cain and Abel, God condemns violence and he affirms the sanctity of human life. If we lose Genesis, we lose ethnicity. And what the Bible teaches, that we're not just multiple races. No, we're one human race. We're all descended from the same ancestors. We have a diversity of ethnic tribes, but we're all the people that God has created. If we lose Genesis, we lose the concept of faith, that we don't earn God's favor through religious exercises, but God credits our account with righteousness when we put our faith in him. And finally, we lose the foreshadowing of the gospel, the proto-evangelium, Genesis 3.15, which gives us the first promise of our Messiah, the seed of the woman who would triumph over Satan and show the redemptive work of Christ. You see, we could keep going on. Those are 10. But we could mention God's covenants, judgment, grace, sacrifice, atonement. We could keep going on. But time doesn't permit. We've seen four important events in Genesis. We've seen creation, the fall, the flood, the table of nations. We've seen four at least very important men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, among the rest. And this foundational book points us back to our story of origins. And it assures us, you didn't come from apes. You didn't come from a primordial soup or a single-celled amoeba. This foundational book shows us who God truly is and therefore who we truly are. He's a faithful covenant-keeping God and we have been fashioned in his image with care and love. This foundational book reveals to us that there is a dark and sinister plot against the king, but there's also a gracious and mighty plan to put an end to sin. And so believers, we need not blush when we say, I believe in Genesis. I believe in a literal six-day creation. We need not apologize that we are young earthers or apologize that we believe in a global flood or apologize that we root our identity in the Imago Dei. No, we shrink back not in the face of atheism, Darwinian evolutionary biology, or anyone who casts doubt on what scripture so clearly and simply declares. From the first verse of our Bibles, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, to the very last verse, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all, amen. We have the very words of God. So let God be true and every man a liar. Amen? Stand with me and we'll close.
by being reminded that God is our vision. Father in heaven, you are the creator and you are sovereign and good. What a wonderful, true prayer to pray. You are sovereign and you are good. If you were not good, Lord, your sovereignty would be something we cower from, we run from. It would be abhorrent. Lord, if you were good, but not sovereign, then Lord, there would be no reason to place our faith in your might because your might is not eternal. And so Lord, we thank you this morning that we can call upon a God who is both exceedingly great and exceedingly good. And Lord, we ask that as we consider your goodness and your sovereignty this morning, like Joseph, we in the midst of suffering can say, yes, this was evil, but God meant it for good. Lord, may we submit to you. May we be faithful to you. May we be obedient to you. And that's all through the work of Christ, your son. We love you. We worship you. And we thank you for this great study that we've been able to grow from and learn from. And we ask that you be glorified today in and through our lives. In Christ's name and for Christ's sake, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast, King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.